0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number, and the inmate's number that. If you're out there, little cast, in here, just lay down the... and <laughs> Those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe I was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back that stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, i gave give it back to them. That was one of, the, one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee, pretty quick they'd have to plan to to get
2: under your skin some way or or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated there. My name's Anthony, and I'm talking to Skye down in Texas.
0: Hi, how's it going? (laughs)
2: Hey Sky, happy uh, almost Halloween! Sorry, oh, I'm being extra man. spooky. I
0: can't I can't believe that it's almost Halloween? It feels like it's like still September. Well, and also it doesn't help that in Texas it was it's supposed to be like 88 degrees Monday and Tuesday, um, and I don't what? like it. Yeah, not a fan. Not a fan. So it, that's oh. why it feels like it's still September. But
2: yeah. So oh I, yeah. This is yeah. this is exactly a week before Halloween. This is the uh-huh. 24th. Uh huh. 24th. And yeah, here at Boise, it's just rainy and Amazing. wet, and all the leaves in my backyard are just sopping wet. I don't know when I'm going to rake them all up. Mm,
0: I found a professor. She's from Pennsylvania, and so most everyone in my cohort is from Texas, and so they're like, yeah, this is just Texas, and I'm like, I hate it so much. And so anytime <sighs> I can find someone who's like not from the South, I'm like, do you miss fall? I miss fall so much. Please tell me about how much you miss fall so I don't feel so weird. <laughs> she's just like, yeah, oh. I miss fall. So,
2: fine. Well, yeah, I love it. It's my I'm favorite. Jealous.
0: I'm jealous. But, yeah. well, <laughs> should we maybe get a little spooky and creepy and gruesome and just in time for the big day?
2: Yes, I believe we should. So, today I am starting with the story of a man named Henry Caps, number 487. And my sources were The Idaho Statesman, of course, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, Library of Congress Chronicling America, a Wikipedia article on William Borah, and an article about the history of Meridian on meridiancity.org. Now, Henry Caps was born in the Jefferson Boone Township in Arkansas to a large farming family in 1860. He appeared in the census that year as a two-month-old baby, and he was the youngest of 10 children born to Robert and Elvira Capps. And I was like, Elvira, that's Elvira. the coolest. Elvira. Yeah. That's
0: a spooky name.
2: <laughs> I knew that this was going to be perfectly spooky when I found that. So the family was Baptist, and they regularly attended church, and Henry only had one year of schooling but learned to read and write in his childhood. Now, I don't know much about his early childhood other than being a farm boy, but I found that on September 15th, 1887, at the age of 27, he married 17-year-old Dora M. Leonard in Johnson, Texas, and she was from Missouri, and she had been born there in 1870. Then, from there, I don't really know much until the 1890s when Henry and his family came to Idaho and began renting some land near Meridian from a man named William A. Ownweiler. Now, Meridian is just west of Boise and is considered Idaho's fastest growing city and one of the fastest growing cities in the whole United States. It's a really cool town. I kind of grew up in and around it. And uh, there's a, actually a walking tour app and tons of history on their website, meridiancity.org. So if you're interested in checking it out, you know, go, go there. You can download the app and do a walking tour of this town. It has these great historic photos and little stories. And I want to thank the Meridian History Center and historian Leela Hill for all the great research on that town that I'm sharing right here. Meridian was actually named Meridian because it was located on the Boise Survey Meridian Line. You remember when I talked about going to Initial Point earlier this year, Mm -hmm. that place where all Idaho surveying began, and it's kind of on this hill, this little mound in the middle of the desert in Kuna. Meridian actually lines up directly north of Initial Point along the Meridian Line. So that's where it gets that name.
0: There you go. I always wondered that.
2: Yeah, I was like, oh, that explains so much. And yeah. I like pulled it up on Google Maps and was like, wow, perfect line. That's, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> the town was actually originally called Hunter, but early settlers Christian and Eliza Zenger, who filed the first homestead grant in 1893, they actually filed a plat and changed the name to Meridian that year. And when the Caps family arrived, Meridian was developing into this small little growing community of farmers and dairymen. The Onweilers owned a large swath of, of farm and pasture land and most likely rented a lot of this land to a bunch of different families that were flocking west. William Onweiler actually raised cattle and probably dairy cows, whom he regularly walked out to the pastures to, to feed. Now, anyone who knows about Meridian kind of knows how important dairy is to the city. A Creamery was actually built in 1897, and Meridian became the primary dairy in the state which is still celebrated today with the annual dairy days event Mm -hmm. held the third full weekend of june each year did you ever go to that as a kid
0: um i didn't really go as a kid which is surprising because i like spent 20 years uh, of my my life there um but i will tell you there's a girl in my cohort she's Kind of young and um, and I think it's just a generation thing, but someone was like making fun of this poor kid from New Hampshire because they were like he still drinks milk, and I was like, I is that weird? Like I still drink milk, and they're like, what? That's disgusting. And now I'm like <laughs> looking back, like oh, it's because I grew up in like the dairy capital of the state, and I just like didn't realize it. Like we used to get you know the door stop deliveries from Yes yeah. breeds Dairy, like yeah, so. <laughs> Um, I, I definitely participated in the the dairy culture of Meridian, as it were.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah, I still drink milk every once in a while, you know, and put it in my tea every morning, you know. So I
0: don't. I mean, they were like, I mean, I guess if you put it in cereal, but just to like drink it. And I was like, I don't know. I guess I just always did it, so it never bothered me. I don't. I don't understand. Right. It, it, it's, they always told me it's good for you.
2: Yeah, growing up, I would have like a big glass of milk next to my bowl of cereal. Like totally. I would. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, drink my body weight in milk every week. I mean, so. <laughs> yeah, seriously,
0: I think the amount of things that I have milk, like, milk is weirdly good with, like, mac and cheese, and it's good with, oh, like, yeah. like there's so many things that it's good. I just was, like, I, I feel like it's, like, a younger thing to be, like, we don't drink cow's milk. That's disgusting. And I was just, like, okay, well, it makes sense, though, I guess, now that you're <laughs> giving me this information about my hometown.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I used to love to go to Dairy Days. We'd go every year, and... I just remember, you know, finding all the ice cream spots and getting the free ice cream. And
0: <laughs> do you know what I do remember about? And I don't. This is actually technically it's in Meridian uh, or in Nampa, I should say. But the uh, cheese factory that was out right off the, I think, is the Karcher exit. Um, yeah. And you could get squeaky cheese.
2: Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. my gosh,
0: I was obsessed with that squeaky cheese when I was a kid. Like I still think about it sometimes.
2: <laughs> oh right, I've I've had it since. There's something about it as a kid. It's like, it's so good. But as an adult, (laughs) I think I was, it's just cheese curds. Yeah. But there's something magical about it. Like seeing it being processed, Uh like that little overhang. Yeah. Totally. Totally. It just tastes different. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's, yeah. It's the, well, I think it's also just as a kid, your, your taste palette is so unrefined that you're just like, yes, (laughs) let me pop this entire (laughs) hunk of cheese into my mouth.
2: (laughs) I mean, I still kind of, you know, I eat my body weight in cheese every fair week enough. too. Now, so.
0: fair enough. I that's the thing is, I have lost that dairy edge. We're, like, I'll use cheese if it's necessary. But like, when I my dad used to just carve off like blocks of cheddar cheese and just give it to us, and now I'd be like, no, I'm good. Like, I don't know. Just I guess when you grow up in a in a dairy town.
2: Oh, Meridian, it's great. Everybody <laughs> should check it out. It's so good. Meridian. As this concludes our little Sorry <laughs> we, we
0: went on a bit of a dairy dairy tangent, which is the first time I've ever bit. said that together, that those two words together.
2: <laughs> I think that should just be a new portion of the podcast, just uh, <laughs> And
0: this week on Dairy Tangent. What's up with blue cheese?
2: Gorgonzola. <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, so, we're back on track. Besides dairies, Meridian also had a large orchard and it was a main hub for dried fruit and fruit packaging businesses sending fruit throughout the country. It was uh, incorporated as a village in 1903 and finally incorporated as a city in 1941. But this whole story kind of is during the middle 1890s and Meridian is just developing. And things were going really well for Henry, the Cap's family. He liked his landlord, William Ownweiler, and he was establishing himself in this little village. But things started to go south when William began to bring his cattle onto Henry's rented pasture. On several occasions, Henry rushed the cattle off and told William that this is my pasture that I'm renting. You can't bring your cattle onto this pasture. I'm using it. He was getting upset, telling him, no, get your stuff out of here. I know it's your land, but I'm renting it, and I don't want your cattle on it. This all comes to a head on October 25th, 1895. On that date, Henry, using a shovel, was working on the road near the entrance of his place when William rode up on horseback with his cattle in tow once again. And he was also carrying a shovel over his shoulder that he was working on the irrigation ditches with. Now, Without saying a word, William hopped off the horse and he passed Henry and began opening the gate to Henry's rented pasture to drive the cattle back inside. Henry told William, don't touch that gate. But William ignored him. Henry approached his landlord and witnesses described two different events that occurred next. And the first one, Landlord William actually pulled a pistol out of his pocket and pointed it at Henry. Henry swung his shovel in self-defense and hit William across the face, and William dropped the pistol and collapsed. In the other story, Henry struck William first from behind as William reached for the latch on the gate. Then, as William turned, he struck him again near his right temple. And when William dropped... Henry bent down and reached into William's pocket and pulled out the pistol. Regardless, after being struck by the shovel, William fell, quote, like an ox, face downward, end quote. Henry ran to his house and grabbed a camphor to revive his landlord, but it was too late. These two farmers witnessed the attack nearby and rushed over. They actually heard as Henry swung the first time he struck the shovel that William had been holding and then he struck him the second time Henry actually handed William's revolver to one of these these farmers that rushed over and They attempted to carry William to his home and while they carried him he vomited blood before taking his final breath He was dead And Henry immediately turned himself into the constable and expressed deep regret for his action that he professed was entirely in self-defense the trial that followed was over the two witnessed accounts. Did William pull the revolver on Henry, or did Henry pull the revolver out of unconscious William's pocket after he struck him with the shovel? Future Idaho Senator William Bora actually served for the state prosecution against Henry Caps. William? Was 30 years old at the time. He had been born in June 29, 1865. He studied law at the University of Kansas starting in 1885, and he passed the bar in 1887. And in 1889, he became the city attorney in Lyons, Kansas, but soon after decided he wanted to head west. In October 1890, he boarded a train and began heading west, stopping in Boise, Idaho, and his biographer, Marion McKenna, said that Boise, Idaho was, quote, as far as his pocketbook would take him, end quote. And Idaho had become part of the Union in July of 1890, that year, so William Borah was ready to develop himself along the newly developing state, and by 1895, he was well established in the capital city, serving as the chair of the Republican State Central Committee, he was a well known lawyer, and he was the husband of Idaho's third governor William J. McConnell's daughter. So he is a pretty well connected individual at this point in eighteen ninety five. Now a doctor had testified that William Ownweiler's skull wasn't fractured because the blow was with the flat end of the shovel on his temple, and death occurred due to a concussion. With that documented, William Ownweiler was buried at the Meridian Cemetery, and he actually has a pretty interesting gravestone so i consulted our cemetery specialist and volunteer david hobbin to see if he could explain the symbolism of william Owenweiler's gravestone and david said that uh, his stone was a vaulted obelisk and the top of it is designed to look like a vaulted ceiling in a church and above his name and the date of his death is a little etching of wheat with a sickle or a scythe cutting off the base of the wheat And David said this was usually used to indicate a full life, someone reaching maturity. It was called the divine harvest, and God was harvesting the deceased soul. But William was only 46 at the time of his death, and David said this symbol is usually meant for people age 70 or older. Below the plaque, there is a series of oak leaves, and David explained that oak trees represent strength and power achieved with patience and faith and symbolize longevity and endurance. And he said that many military leaders have oak leaves on their monuments. So I just want to thank David for that kind of little description of uh, William O'Neill Weiler's obelisk gravestone, which has been Meridian. So he's buried just a few days after this death. And William Borah, he wasn't convinced with the original findings of the doctor's testimony. So four days after William died... And he was buried. On October 29th, William's body was exhumed. On Halloween, on October 31st, 1895, the Idaho statesman published the story, quote, dead man beheaded. Ownweiler's skull and Dr. Collister's possession will be brought to court. Speculation as to the object of procuring the gruesome exhibit, end quote. They dig up this body that's been buried for about four days they decapitate the head, and they bring this into the crowded courtroom for a preliminary hearing as the states exhibit.
0: Just the skull, right? Like, they didn't bring in his full
2: Yeah, head. just the skull. Okay. Yeah. And it was it was pretty controversial that they yeah. would exhume and decapitate a victim like this. Did
0: he not have any family?
2: He did, yeah.
0: And they didn't consult them. They said, we just need this. Thanks. Pretty
2: much, Ooh. yeah. Ugh. And so the prosecution showed the judge and jury that, quote, the skull is cracked as though the unfortunate man had been hit with a sledgehammer. It is crushed almost like an eggshell, end quote. Hmm. So Henry sat in jail without bail until February, and he pled not guilty, and the trial finally began. And the newspaper noted his pale appearance after spending several months in a jail instead of, you know, tending to his field. Then the state brought the skull back into the courtroom as evidence, which the defense again objected to, quote, the ghastly thing was paraded before the jurors to give them an idea of the force of the blow, end quote. And the courtroom was actually packed with local citizens during this trials. so they also saw this skull. The trial lasted several days, and many witnesses took to the stand, and the jury ended up deliberating for six tense hours they finally came to the verdict of manslaughter. The judge sentenced Henry Caps to three years in the Idaho State Penitentiary for manslaughter on March 30th, 1896. And he came in as Henry Caps, number 487. He was received March 30th, 1896 from Ada County. Crime, manslaughter, sentenced three years. Age, he's 35 years old at the time. Occupation, farmer. He's five feet, eight and a quarter inches tall. Complexion, light weight 182 pounds, he had sandy hair, blue eyes, he was married with two children, his father was living but his mother passed away when he was 23, he left home at the age of 22, he was raised in the Baptist church and was still a member of that church, he had one year of schooling, could read and write, he drank moderately, he had no previous incarceration or trouble, his nearest relative was his wife Donna Capps in Meridian, his teeth were in good condition, he wore a mustache and size 8 shoes. And I started to look because this initial preliminary trial happened right there, right around Halloween, November 1st. And so I decided to look up like, I wonder if Halloween was celebrated back in 1895. And I found several examples. Uh, for example, this is from Rath Drummond up in North Idaho, the Silver Blade newspaper on November 2nd, 1895. And it says, Quote, Thursday evening was Halloween, and the kids of Rathdrum were out in full force raising merry hell with vehicles, gates, and outbuildings. And yesterday morning the town appeared as if visited by a cyclone. The kids had lots of fun, and as no one has made any kick, we presume what they did was all right. Halloween was observed at Post Falls, and as one of the results, no school was held there yesterday. Some mischievous boys, of course, of course there are no girls in it, changed all the books, disabled the bell, and put things generally about the schoolhouse into such shape that the teachers found it impossible to hold school the day following. End quote. I just thought that was really fun. That
0: yeah, it um, one of my favorite old movies called Meet Me in St. Louis. There's actually uh, it takes place in 1904, and mm-hmm. there's actually a Halloween scene, and it looks actually like a wild time for kids. That like they yeah. basically created like a bonfire in the middle of the street as children. Seem to be no su- adult supervision whatsoever. And then the thing that they would do, the like trick or treat. And it wasn't even a trick-or-treat. It was... So, like, they would give the kids, like, little bags of flour, and then they would, like, go to the door and throw flour in, like, the homeowner's faces and then, like, run run off. Um, Oh, my God. And so, like, the main character of the scene is this, like, little... I think she's supposed to be, like, seven or eight. And, like, her... She's, like, trying to get in to, like be with the like little kid gang but they keep being like you're too little you can't do it and so they like dare her to go do it to like the scariest guy on the block and she does and it's uh, just like watching that it's just like it's so interesting to see how much has changed but that like you know there still were celebrations and, and um and you know how much holidays have shifted to to you know what they are in modern day and where they started and yeah
2: it was all about you know tricks and. Trick or treat sort of things, and right. yeah <laughs> so Henry was serving time alongside George Hamilton, who designed and constructed the prison dining hall. And he would have probably watched it being constructed and may have even helped with some of the manual labor involved in that construction. There were about fifteen to twenty men cutting stone, and the warden, Charles Van Dorn, also noted that the prison orchards were rapidly growing and, quote, sheltered from the cold winds and frosts of early spring, and in all seasons will furnish an ample supply of fruit for the prison. End quote with that the warden was actually requesting some appropriation for small drying and canning departments for this fruit to provide future prisoners work and you know with henry's connection to meridian and those orchards he may have been involved in some of that as well but overall his files pretty bare on any details about his incarceration and you know between his start march 30th 1896 he did apply for parole And was released on January 11th, 1898, so just under two years. And he was given a conditional pardon. He's required to leave the state of Idaho and never return. So, on January 11th, 1898, he uh, joined his family and they returned to Arkansas and took over his father's farm. In 1900, Henry and Dora, as well as their two sons and daughter, were living with his father back at the farm in Arkansas. And from there, I only know a couple more little bits about Henry's life. Um, he divorced Dora and remarried a woman named Minnie Farley on August 25th, 1906, in Elm Springs, Arkansas. And they seem to have divorced because in 1908, he married another woman named Arizona Plumley. And they appeared together in the 1930 census in Texas. And Arizona passed away in 1931, and Henry remained a widower for the rest of his days. He moved to about four miles west and a mile south of Beggs, Texas, and died at the age of seventy four on may eleventh, nineteen thirty four from what the newspaper described as acute indigestion. Do you know the spooky part about this whole crime is just this skull being yeah. paraded through the Ada County Courthouse of this recently? buried man. And Onweiler, I mean, he was a big name in early Meridian history. So, And uh, if you come to any of our events this week at the Old Pen, we are having late night events Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 6 p.m. to midnight. If you come on Thursday or Saturday, you may hear this and other stories told by some of our guides. So... Yeah, that short and sweet. So yeah, that is definitely. Henry Caps, number 487.
1: In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked lived and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 storytelling program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Oh, I remember telling about the women that escaped the I had a plank and they nailed some slats on it and put it up to the to the wall. There were two or three of them. <laughs> got out and got away. They had two or three murderers, women in for murder in there. And this one was used to go by the name of Tarzan. They named her Tarzan. <laughs> but they all got back.
2: All right, Sky. I believe you have a very fascinating story and very spooky and gruesome story for us today.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, If you listen to some of these with your kids, um, I would certainly vet... this one, um, this one is definitely more less along the lines of like spooky Halloween and more along the lines of like Halloween kills and like scream and all those like scary slasher movies that are coming out recently. Oh, so yeah. yeah, that is not my bag. But um, you know, here is a little bit for for people whose bag gruesome Halloween is. So I am talking about number seven two eight two Verna Keller. So, sources are her inmate file, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, uh, articles from newspaper.com, ancestry.com records, sandpointidaho.gov, kalispell tribe.com, an article titled Then and Now Farragut Naval Training Station on the spokesman.com, which was formerly called the spokesman review. And then just like statistics from Wikipedia. So Verna Keller was born Verna Belle Delphine Norton in Belfry, Montana on August 25th, 1932, Tris Norton and Emily Eckerd Norton. She was the fourth of eight kids. She had an older brother, Tris Jr., older sisters, Helen and Wilma younger sisters, Darlene and Edwina, and then younger brothers, Robert and Donald. And just something to sort of keep in mind is that some described Verna as she grew up as having a, quote, temperamental disposition, end quote. She described her childhood as pretty hard. Her father worked in the Forest Service for many years, and so he was often away at work. And Verna said that her mother, quote, seemed to find the kids in the way most of the time, end quote, and she was always telling the kids to go outside and play and stay out of her way. And Verna said that her mother never physically hurt her, but often yelled and threatened to do so. She said that she didn't feel particularly close to either parent, that she admired and respected her father, but, quote, hasn't much respect or liking for her mother, end quote. She said she had a fairly close relationship with her siblings, had, quote, the usual rivalries, perhaps more than the normal amount of quarrels and squabbles, but nothing really serious, end quote. So she started to leave home around 14 years old, perhaps to get attention from her parents. Maybe she felt part of the reason I believe she says is because she felt particularly neglected by her mother. She said that she would come back after running away and her mother would never say anything about it, even if she had been gone for several days. Um, And so I think that didn't help the issues at all. So she kind of said, well, like, clearly my mom doesn't care, so I'm gonna keep doing it, so she started skipping school, staying out late at night. She said part of the reason she started skipping school was because she was somewhat embarrassed to go to school, quote, because she did not have the clothes the other girls had, which clothes her mother wouldn't buy her because she said she couldn't afford to buy them for her, end quote. Authorities sort of described her, um, as, quote, well-developed for her age, end quote, and so because of that, she, I think she was bigger and taller, um, than her, um, you know, contemporaries at the time, um, she's actually a pretty average-sized woman. Once she gets older, but she was sort of inclined to expect others to comply to her wishes because um, she was like a little bit bigger. And so because of all of these things kind of combined, her family had moved to Sandpoint, Idaho at some point. I wasn't, I couldn't find when they'd moved from Montana to Idaho. And so she was actually sent to the Idaho State Industrial School as a quote unquote delinquent on May 29th, 1945. And she was at the industrial school for about 15 months and finished the eighth grade there. She returned to her parents' home in late 1946, but she said she left her parents' pretty soon after she got back and then would kind of stay with her parents on and off for the next six months. She finished ninth grade and dropped out after two weeks of 10th grade. She actually didn't even have that much of an employment history. Um, by the time she was incarcerated, she had done some housework, had a brief job sorting clothes and a laundry in Chico, California in February, 1947. I couldn't figure out why she was in Chico, California, but she was also arrested in Marysville, California, in March 1947 for vagrancy under the name Verna Hoffpaneer. It seems like she was maybe given either a suspended sentence or probation because actually a few days later she was rearrested for the violation of the same charge. But she was discharged even from this violation, perhaps on the condition that she leave the state of California. So, regardless of all of this trouble, personally, Verna was a bit of a tomboy who liked to dance, swim, ice skate, ski, ride motorcycles, and was interested in sort of the major sports at the time. She had the nickname Tarzan, but I'm not completely sure why. The only thing I can think of is, like, maybe she liked to sort of be active and be outside. No document ever says why she was called Tarzan, but even official records will like call her Tarzan instead of Verna. So I think this was a very common nickname for her.
2: Do you know like the history of Tarzan, like when Tarzan first appears in Uh, popular culture?
0: (laughs) This feels like a comps question because I have actually been reading about this. So Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, is the author of Tarzan and he came into existence in I believe the late 1890s, may have even been early 1900s, but I know he was incredibly popular um, through like the 19-teens. I think 1912 was like a peak year for Tarzan and one of the books I'm reading actually for my exams list is about how Tarzan was part of sort of one author um, places him in sort of a, a triad of public figures who were helping redefine American masculinity at the time. Uh, And so he was with a a strong man named Eugene Sandow. So he was like a sort of the first strong man who really started to promote like, you know, working out and becoming muscular. And then the other figure actually was uh, Harry Houdini, because at the time, according to historians, masculinity was sort of in crisis, that there was the shift from sort of the era of men who the true man sort of was self-restrained and not timid by any means but he what like it wasn't about physical prowess it was about like skill and intellectualism and so tarzan and eugene sandow and harry houdini all contributed to sort of the idea of the strong civilized man overcoming the primitive man and that's especially where tarzan comes in um is is that he was because he was a human living in the jungle. He was the king of the jungle, had mastery over all of these animals who had, you know, literally adapted to live in the jungle to their own success. And so that he, you know, represented the sort of civilizing force always overcoming the jungle and and nature. And so he was very popular long before this, but he's always remained... You know in in i think the popular culture lexicon and then of oh, course yeah. you know made a, a resurgence with yeah i would argue the the disney movie in the late 90s mm-hmm. so anyway that was that, a yeah. very long explanation about who tarzan was and which is why i think it probably is in reference to her being a little bit more of a tomboy and active and totally yeah
2: kind of masculine, mm-hmm. confrontational. Mm-hmm. And, yeah.
0: yeah, which is interesting because, like, if you take a look at her mugshot, which we'll post on, on our social medias, I, like, she still looked very feminine, and, uh-huh. um, you know, it wasn't, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. So she must have just been enough of into sports and activities that it seemed out of the ordinary in the late 1940s.
1: Yeah. Um, so. Tarzan was a tomboy. Boy, she was rough. How did she get that name? Do you know? Tarzan, because she was burly and fought, and, and they had a they had a clan up there. And she was the queen, and I guess somebody else was the king. But they they did go over to Spokane. They were over in Spokane, but they were around there. Then this McIntyre, uh, who wouldn't look like it now, but he he was uh, a high monkey monk in this organization they had. And I don't know whether he was the king at this time or not. But anyway, uh, there was a girl in there. Uh, I, I think they were pretty loose with their sex activity and so forth. They didn't smoke marijuana. They didn't wear marijuana. I suppose they drank. I don't know what they were doing. Uh, maybe I don't even remember that there was any pills connected with it. But they were a gang of, I suppose there was maybe as many as 12, 15, and maybe more, I don't know. But they uh, had this gang, and, and Tarzan was the queen. She was the head gal in it. I think uh, later, I don't think at first, but later, I think McIntyre was the king. But um, one of the girls... Well, she, the Tarzan name was her nickname before she Helen, came to the man. Helen, yeah. Oh, okay. Helen Keller. Helen, Helen, mm-hmm. Helen
0: She admitted that she did drink and began drinking excessively in the beginning of 1947, but she said, quote, She always had full control over her drinking, and she never felt drink was a real problem before, end quote. So, Verna then claims that she married a man named Berkeley M. Keller, who was 28, double her age, in Thompson Falls, Montana. And um, Berkeley actually went by the name Buck. Uh, and they huh. married in August 1944 when she was just 14 years old. And she claimed that they got married before she was sent to the industrial school. She said that they immediately had had one daughter named Pamela who they gave up for adoption. You know, the question is why would they give it up for adoption if they were legally married? I couldn't find record of of this adoption or this birth, Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously I don't want to say it didn't happen some kind of question marks there she also said that she and buck lived on and off together for about three months before the marriage was annulled in october 1944 um, and said of it quote she maintains that his chief fault was stealing money and various articles end quote now they did officially marry or you could even say they remarried on may 24th 1947 again in thompson falls montana Now, surprisingly, she says things didn't get any better between them, Um, Uh and so they separated in July 1947 after two months back together, and in her file, it says, quote, she says they were not congenial in their interests, that he didn't like to dance, was not interested in sports, and she was very much interested in those recreational outlets, end quote. And supposedly he was also still stealing money. He had been arrested for it twice. And so she, she quote, grew tired of him, end quote. There was another hiccup in her family life. In August 1947, her parents separated and then divorced. The only reports of the separation and divorce that I could find come from Verna herself. And she didn't really get along with her mom, so sort of take what comes next with a grain of salt. So supposedly... Mm-hmm. Her two, the two parents separated because Emily, her mother, quote, broke up a home in Sandpoint, married the man, and left for Wenatchee, Washington, end quote. Jeez. Oh, and, according to Verna, before leaving with the married man, her mother had also had affairs with high school boys. Uh. Which I very much hope is a big lie that Verna made up. Wow. Because I don't yeah. I don't like that. And again, this, I couldn't find any newspaper articles that stated anything about the separation or divorce or obviously anything with these, you know, supposedly anything that may have happened with these high school boys. So, I mean, things are not going super great in 1947 for her. So soon after Verna separated from her husband, probably around the same time her parents separated, she met a man named Roscoe Clark Hartley, who was eight years her senior, and they soon began living together. And she asserted that in the Sandpoint community, they were known as man and wife, that everyone in the community thought that they were married. He said it was just a, quote, shack up, a convenience for having sexual relations, end quote. Uh, She didn't agree. She, unfortunately, thought that she loved him. Um, And you will see why she, it's unfortunate that she thought that in just a little bit. Um, I covered Sandpoint History in Season 5, Episode 3, and that was pretty recently, so I'll just give a brief recap. So, um, prior to European settlement, the area was home to the Kalispell tribe of natives, and it's believed that the Kalispell people came south from British Columbia after the Blackfoot people pushed them from the Great Plains to Lake Pend Oreille. Now, there are two bands of Kalispell. There's the Upper Kalispell, who are also known as the Pend Oreille, and the Lower Kalispell. The upper band was forced onto the Flathead Reservation in Montana, while the lower band uh, were able to stay in their homelands, on their homelands, in Washington state. In 1872, the Kalispell tribe refused to sign a treaty with the U.S. government, and unfortunately by 1875, the tribal population had shrunk to only 395 people. Between 1880 and 1910, more and more white settlers moved into Kalispell territory, and the tribe could do nothing about it. Many settlers filed claims under the Homestead Act, claiming they were quote-unquote legally gaining the right to the land when it, of course, rightfully belonged to the tribe. Then in 1914, the Kalispell were placed on a reservation in eastern Washington, only about 4,557 acres of land, and most of the land was unsuitable for agricultural development, so they had to develop ways, other ways to quote, create opportunities for tribal members, end quote. So this is according to the Kalispell tribe website, quote, Kalispell members remain trapped in a subsistence environment. In 1965, only a couple of homes on the reservation had running water, and there was only one telephone for the tribe. The average oh. annual income for a tribal member was approximately $1,400, end quote. Um, mm. Which is bleak, and, and of course this is unfortunately something that we see very often. So I do want to read this statement from the Kalispell tribe website because I think it is... Really important to to sort of read their own words so it says quote, "while the past two centuries of the Kalispell's people's existence have been difficult in many ways we realize that 200 years is the blink of an eye in Kalispell history our present and future are hopeful not only for our tribe but for non-tribal community members as well our land and our ancestors mean everything to us they have always sustained us and today in new ways they will continue to sustain us into the future the foundation of our hospitality is nourishing and giving our strength is cordial and honorable" Gratitude and respect are expressed for the prosperity we share. In the future, we hope for a wonderful life." A Northwest company fur trader named David Thompson was one of the first settlers to establish relationship with tribes and establish the fur trading in the area in 1809. Then Northern Pacific Railroad surveyors arrived in the area around 1880. A small settlement named Ponderay opposite the present Sandpoint town popped up. Then, by 1882, the Northern Pacific Railroad began building a stretch of railroad between Montana and Ponderay, and so settlement grew, and then as settlement grew, the Ponderay name was changed to Sandpoint in 1898. Timber was the main industry in Sandpoint and Kootenai County. Farming became popular on cleared forest land, and these farms were called stump ranches because of the stumps that remained after they cut down the, the trees. Um, and these stump ranches primarily grew hay because of the short growing season in northern Idaho, which made it difficult to grow other crops. And hay was, you know, equally important because it was used to feed the horses that lumber companies used to harvest and process wood. The village of Sandpoint was incorporated on February 7th, 1901, and became the city of Sandpoint in 1907. Then a month later, Sandpoint, which had previously been part of Cooney County, became part of Bonner County. Then, just after the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, U.S. military planners chose 4,000 acres in northern Idaho for a new Navy training center, and the area was chosen because it was believed to be far enough away from the coast to be safe from another Pearl Harbor-style attack. And so um, in April 1942, construction began on the Farragut Naval Training Station. More than 22,000 workers worked seven days a week, and the base was completed in September 1942. So it was about five months that they spent building this station. And it opened with 30,000 recruits and training. This was actually the second largest naval training base in the country behind Naval Station Great Lakes in Illinois. The facility eventually included 6 individual camps with approximately 5000 men each. Each camp had more than 20 barracks buildings and each building housed 250 men. It also included the mess hall, medical dispensaries and recreational facilities. The base was decommissioned in June 1946 having trained 293000 recruits and it was open only open for about 30 months. It was briefly used as the Farragut College and Technical Institute through 1948, and the federal government passed land to the Idaho Department of Fish and Game in 1950. The area became a state park in 1966, and there is still one military feature of the state park. It's actually in the confinement facility of the old Naval Training Station, and the displays include boot camp, naval and war memorabilia, as well as historic prison cells, which we know a thing or two about.
2: Just a little, yeah.
0: Um, So, you know, Verna living in in Sandpoint and in the area would have witnessed the building and operation of the training station. But by 1947, when she's there, it would have transitioned into the college um, and technical institute. And so back to Verna. So it is actually October 29th, 1947. So uh, this is actually taking place around Halloween, which I had forgotten. So perfect. Um, Yeah,
2: both of them. I know. That's crazy. Funny.
0: So Verna and Roscoe uh, were arrested in Sandpoint for lewd cohabitation, essentially for living together without being married for it being, quote unquote, a shack up. And so together they were sentenced to 90 days in the Bonner County Jail. Now, while being held in jail, no one specifically said she confessed to this while in jail, but I don't know when else she would have confessed to this. So it would have been about being kept in jail early November. Verna admitted to knowing the circumstances behind the death of a local girl named Juanita Plaster, and she knew those circumstances because she had killed her herself. According to a Post-Register article from Idaho Falls, Verna, quote, signed a written statement that she was responsible for the death of Juanita LaVon Plaster, 16, whose beaten body was found in an alley here October 10th, end quote. A month prior, so when this crime first happened, newspaper articles appeared in the Idaho Daily Statesman and Post Register, stating that the perpetrator behind Juanita's death was still a mystery. This is from the Post Register on October 16, 1947. Quote, Questioning of dozens of witnesses has failed to trace Juanita's movements beyond 6 p.m. Friday night. Her body was found Saturday afternoon, but doctors fixed the, her time of death as in the early morning hours of Saturday, end quote. When her body was found, she was missing one shoe, which newspapers called a moccasin. But this was resolved um, a week later, and that's because a local woman named Mrs. Foss, quote, said she found the moccasin on her back porch and burned it, thinking a dog had dragged it there from the garbage container, end quote. Bonner County Prosecuting Attorney Robert E. McFarland, quote, said attempts to learn who had seen the victim on the night of her death were complicated by the fact that the girl was popular and went out with many youths, end quote. So, here are the pretty gruesome details of what happened to Juanita on the night of October 10th, 1947, according to what the newspapers reported that Verna had confessed to. So, I'm not sure how Juanita, Verna, and roscoe all met each other but at one point they were all together in the sandpoint home of verna and roscoe for part of the night of october 10th and it seems possible they had been friends for a while because verna actually had nicknames for both of them roscoe was huh. named sammy and Juanita was called bonnie um and at the end of the night verna asked if she could walk Winita home and Winita agreed um and this is from newspapers quote, on the way, asked her to step into an alley because she wanted to talk to her, end quote. So at this point, Verna began viciously beating Juanita, beating her unconscious, then tore off most of her clothes and wrapped the girl's slacks around her neck. She then ripped apart some other clothing, and the Daily Statesman says that some of Juanita's undergarments, she took, ripped apart the clothing, and then actually stuffed them into Juanita's mouth and used them as a gag.
2: Ugh.
0: And she did all of this and then returned home. Then, according to a second statement made by Roscoe, who originally denied having anything to do with the death, said he went to the alley and found Juanita still breathing, quote-unquote, although faintly, and that said oh, that no. Juanita also had a pulse. So you would think that the the average person would freak out and say, we need to call the police, she's still alive. But no. Right. He tears a piece of cloth off the slacks that had been around Juanita's neck and forced a second gag into her mouth.
2: Oh, no.
0: And so the prosecuting attorney, McFarland, asked Roscoe, quote, "'Did you do this to put her out of her agony?' End quote. "'Yes,' Roscoe answered." And so I think once that was done together, Roscoe and Verna dragged the body further down into the alley, covered it up a little bit, and they left her for dead. And as we know, her body was found the next morning.
2: Wow. That's brutal. Uh, It's horrible.
0: It's horrible. So Verna admitted that she attacked Juanita, quote, because of the attentions she had paid to Hartley, end quote. Um, McFarland said that Juanita's face, quote, bore about 50 deep bruises, punctured by cuts apparently made by a ring. A coroner's journey held that she died of suffocation, end quote. So, just
2: that's horrible. uh, That's brutal. Oh my gosh, like jealousy, and yeah,
0: all because supposedly this. I mean, of course, we don't have when you decide of the story where maybe she wasn't at all, and Verna just was sort of deeply jealous if she had this temperamental personality.
2: Yeah, geez.
0: So, the two of them actually left town four days after the murder, and they went to Ontario, Oregon, where her family was now living. And it was actually in Oregon that they were arrested for their lewd cohabitation charge and returned to Idaho to serve 90 days in the Bonner County Jail. Prior to her charge, the Post Register actually interviewed Verna. And this is the only statement that the newspapers published as being from her. And so she said, quote, The sheriff let me talk to Roscoe after we had made our statements. He and I made our plans. We are going to stick it out together. And when we get out, we will go back together. End quote.
2: Does that actually happen?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, we'll find out. So, on November 18th, 1947, Verna and Roscoe were charged with murder in the first degree. They waived preliminary hearing and were held without bond. They pleaded not guilty, and so trial was scheduled for early January 1948. The Post Register reported on November twenty-third, 1947, that Juanita's parents, Marguerite and Oren Plaster, were granted a divorce, with Marguerite charging extreme cruelty. So, as if the situation for this family couldn't get any harder or more difficult, you know, it really, you know, broke my heart to find that uh, in the newspaper. Yeah. So, on Monday, December 8th, about three weeks after they had pleaded not guilty to first degree verna and roscoe changed their pleas from not guilty of first degree murder to guilty of second degree murder and waived the typical 48 hour delay between their guilty plea and sentencing and so on that same day district judge evie botten sentenced both of them to life in prison at the idaho state penitentiary and uh, warden lou clapp stated he would go up to sandpoint the next week to bring them back to boise to start their sentence and so Verna and Roscoe entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on December 18, 1947, to serve life sentences.
1: Uh, this girl uh, evidently had sex relations with, uh, I think, McIntyre. And um, Tarzan, she uh, uh, had jumped on her about being friendly with him before. And she found out about it, so they took her out and uh, beat her up. I think they did anything but beat her up. They beat her to death, really, is what they did. And they stuffed her in a a trash can, which I think was a regular 50-gallon barrel, I think, but maybe that's what I, kind of under the impression, in an alley. And um, there was, in the trial, I think there was some indication that she suffocated in that barrel. She'd been beat up so badly that she couldn't get out of the barrel anyway. And so... I think Tarzan got a life sentence on it, maybe not, maybe. I think she got a life sentence. McIntyre got a second-degree murder on it because he, he helped her put her in the barrel. And he, I think he got maybe 24 years on second-degree murder, but I think she got a life sentence on first-degree murder, as I remember. And she came down here, and she ruled the roost over in the Women's
0: ward. So, her intake form verna norton keller number 7282 crime murder in the second degree plea of guilty sentence life born at belfry montana on august 25th 1930 religion catholic race white gender female she was 67 and three fourths inches so about 5,7, 158 pounds she was just 17 years old when she came into the penitentiary her eyes were gray her hair was red and it seems almost like a dark red, almost like a brownish red, almost. Her complexion was medium. And the only mark on her batillion is a vaccination scar. <sighs> so when she entered, she was only one of four women. One was Athelyn Peterson, who was in for second degree murder. And when we get to her, that's another horribly brutal one. There was Euletta Cunningham, who was in for grand larceny and Ruth Haynes, who was in for forgery. Then two months after Verna comes in, another woman enters the penitentiary named Margaret Barney, and Margaret Barney was in for a robbery. And these two, they're they're fairly close in age, if not in sort of temperament and personality, and so they become very good friends. Then on February 24th, 1948, so about two months after she had uh, entered, Warden Clapp received news from a lawyer in Montana that Berkeley M. Keller was suing Verna for divorce, so she was quickly a single woman. Now, just as is normal with the women's ward, Verna and the other woman worked outside in the gardens around the ward. And these women must not have been very closely supervised while they were out there because Verna and Margaret found a long piece of timber and they began nailing pieces of kindling wood to it. And this starts to make kind of a makeshift ladder and apparently no one seemed to notice. Um And I don't know if like they were working under the guise of maybe making kindling wood for the cell house because the wood they used actually came from a coal box that they had like pulled apart. so I don't know like how they got away with this, but they're starting to make this makeshift ladder and just before 6 am on April 6th, 1948, two months after Margaret entered and four months after Verna entered, officials went into the women's ward and discovered that the two women were missing. And A note remained in their place addressed to the four remaining women. Quote, You girls thought we were kidding, but we had it all planned. I'm going to see my mother. We will be back soon, end quote. Uh, <sighs> and the word soon is actually underlined. And so this seems to indicate that the two of them were bragging, that they had sort of almost like talked to these girls and were like, We're going to escape. And everyone else is like, Yeah, okay. Like, let me know how that goes. Um, right. So no one believed him. And so they, they did it um obviously this is going to cause massive amounts of chaos so two hours later at 8 a.m ward and lou Clapp received a telephone call from payette idaho and it was the girls on the other side of the line and they basically said we're in ontario oregon come and get us they gave themselves up and so here's the story of their escape That as they put together their makeshift ladder, they also began working on the bars over a window in what the Daily Statesman calls the quote-unquote ancient cell house. It was only 30 years old at the time, but they started working, sort of sawing away at the bars over a window. And that seems to indicate that they probably shared a cell. Um, Mm -hmm. But we do know that authorities, they locked sort of that larger area of the women's ward around 4, but they didn't lock them into their cells until 9 p.m. And so their presence would have been noticed before 6 a.m. if they had escaped before they were locked in their cells, if that makes sense. So um, it seems to indicate that basically in the hours they were locked inside the cell, they were working on the bars in the window in their cell rather than like Mm -hmm. in one, you know, of a common area or something. So finally, they managed to chip one of the bars loose from the concrete windowsill and managed to escape out into the yard, which I don't know how they did like. How in the world this one bar made enough space for each of them? I think Margaret was a little bit smaller than, than Verna was. She, because she's about my height and weight, and I can't imagine trying to squeeze through one of those windows in the women's ward without the bars, much less with at right. least one bar still attached. So,
2: I feel like like with desperation, yeah,
0: like, you're
2: able to do a lot more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: So finally, they get out in the yard, they grab their makeshift ladder, they leaned it against the wall, and they climb to the top. Now, you may be wondering where the guards are. Well, there was a guard who roamed the grounds at night, and so they knew this, and they watched him, quote, from atop the wall until he went around another building before jumping down to the ground outside the walls, end quote. Hmm. So then they hiked two miles from the state penitentiary into the city of Boise, where they hitched a ride with a man for several miles. After they were dropped off, they hitched another ride with two other men, and with these men they stopped in Caldwell to eat at a cafe, and then they had the men drop them off in Ontario. And while in Ontario, they visit Verna's mother, who I imagine was like, sorry, what are you doing here? Who is this person? You are supposed to be in prison. And so, understandably, she encourages them to give themselves up and return to prison. And they decide, "All right, like, that's what we're gonna do. So they hitch a ride from Ontario to Payette, Idaho, where they placed the phone call to Warden Clapp. This is such a funny thing. They had no money, and so they actually had to reverse the charges of the call, meaning that Clapp had to pay for them calling him and saying that they had escaped, and <sighs> you gotta come pick him up. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the phone call, the two girls promised Clapp that if he, quote, would not notify the police, we will be waiting for you at Ontario at Mrs. Norton's place, end quote. So they hitchhiked back to Payette while Clapp quote, gave his word to the women inmates and then sped by automobile to Ontario where he found the escapees patiently awaiting him, end quote. <sighs> Clap quoted the girls as saying, quote, we had been talking about escaping for a long time and we did it just to show you that we could do it, end quote. <sighs> And so he said that they seemed to find the whole escape as, quote, a lot of fun and a great prank, end quote. Wow. Yeah. And so overall, they were gone for less than 24 hours. He had them back in their cells by, I think, like that evening. And so maybe because of this, maybe because they turned themselves in so quickly, they actually didn't seem to receive any extra punishment for this escape.
1: We have a photograph of this cutting down tree in the front of the women's ward. Do you remember anything about that, or yep. why that happened? Um, I wish I could think of her name, I've been trying to think of it, and I'm, I'll run into it, I haven't. But uh, before I got here, and I would say it was in 52, because it hadn't been very long before I was here, but she and another gal climbed up the tree over there and escaped. She had a good sense of humor after, so when she first came, I guess she was tough as hell belligerent but she by the time I got here and maybe a little while before she had a good sense of humor and, and so they escaped I can't remember how they got to Ontario but they got to Ontario and I think it was about 11 o'clock at night they called the uh, clap up at his home he's living in this house right here then and one know uh, if he was looking for him, he wouldn't know where they were I don't think they told him. But they were. They called him back then on the telephone or something. I guess they were remorseful or sorry that they escaped, and they didn't know what to do. But anyway, they agreed on the phone that that he would come. He was coming right down to get him. And I've heard this story a uh, hundred times. That he drove from here to Ontario in thirty-three minutes or something. Uh, uh, That's before we had the freeway, you know. But anyway, he got down and picked him up and brought back. The class picked him up. He picked him up himself. I don't think he. I don't think he had any. So the trees were. Uh... Well, the next day. Now they brought the girls right back to the penitentiary, and they were never prosecuted for escape. And so the next day, um, they made quite a ceremony uh, about going over and. Goddamn tree down. There wasn't anybody else use it to climb over the wall with.:
0: After this escape, though, Verna settles in for the long haul, realizing she's in for life, and so her attitude starts to change dramatically. she goes from, essentially the 17-year-old kid into, you know, a much more responsible young woman and so she starts to participate in housekeeping and sort of general maintenance around the women's ward the matron reported that verna made a good institutional adjustment after returning from her escape she said that verna was quote willing to learn and is obedient gets along well with the other girls tries to do the best she can has improved immensely end quote she also began attending Catholic religious services while she was in the women's ward, which is a little bit different because upon her intake, she said that she preferred the LDS church because her mother attended it, and her maternal aunt encouraged her to keep attending LDS services, but seemed to prefer, and actually, even though she attended Catholic services while she was in, in prison, she actually preferred the LDS faith even when she was released. Wow. Um, It doesn't seem later, too much later in life that she sort of remained an active member of the LDS church, but she said that she did prefer that. She entered her first plea for clemency in 1951. This was denied. And she has a lot of documents in her file, but interestingly very few of them document her time in prison. And there's actually not even documents in her file detailing her escape. I got all of those those details from newspapers, and so there aren't many extra details I can give you about her time um, in prison. In January 1952, her mother actually wrote Warden and Clapp, and this is really the only thing we find from her mother in her file. And this is the letter. Quote, Dear Mr. Clapp, I'm writing you a few lines in behalf of Verna. I understand she intends to come before the board again this month. I'm so in hopes she will be able to make some progress in her case this time. I hope she has proved she can be a good girl and will try her best to continue. I am very anxious for her to be free and here with me. I'm sure we can work out something together that would be to her advantage. I most certainly will do all in my power to... To help her in every way possible. Hoping to hear from you, Mr. Clapp, and let me know how she is doing, please. I'm very sorry I've not written to you on the matter sooner. Life hasn't been easy for me, so maybe you can understand my circumstances too. Yours very truly, Emily Norton, Verna's mother. End quote. Now Clapp did write back. He let Emily know that Verna's case was denied for clemency in January 1952, adding briefly, quote, she is getting along very nicely, end quote. Now, when Verna was asked if she had any friends or family who could help her when she was released, she did list her mother, Emily Norton, in Washington State. And this is really interesting because we know she didn't like her mother growing up and didn't seem to have a high opinion of her. Is this a case of Emily does seem to be taking an interest in Verna? Did her escape? Did her mother sit her down and have a real talk with her that changed her mind? Mm -hmm. Is she just getting older and sort of getting out of that that teenage rebellion phase? I'm I'm not really sure, but she does seem to acknowledge that her mother is willing to help her and seems to be willing to take that help. In the same document, that she stated that her mother would be um, someone who could help, she asked for a final release, and she was asked to state the reason why she was asking for a final release, and she said, "quote I would like to have a final release, so as soon as my father is found, I can go to him." end quote. I don't, unfortunately, don't know the circumstances behind this, that if her father mm-hmm. disappeared, if she just hadn't heard from him since she was arrested, there was also no date on this document. Um, and weirdly, that's that's a big problem with a lot of the documents in her file, is that they're missing dates. Like, I really had a hard time figuring out what document went where in terms of, of chronology.
2: Right. So, interesting. So,
0: yeah. Um, I don't know like where her father went as far as I, I think he, you know, we lose track because again, we, when I was doing this research, that 1950 census wasn't up yet. And so I, you know, I lost track of him after the forties when he was still with the family. So beginning at the end of 1952 at the beginning of 1953 someone in in the sandpoint community rallied a group of citizens to write the warden on varna's behalf and so she in her file has 10 different letters written from various community members including one of her sisters they're basically all form letters though they all sort of vary in specifics they basically say that they believe she served her debt to society can't you please have mercy they'll take her into her home if they release her she is not released, but these letters may have done some good because on on April 7th, 1953, after almost five and a half years, her sentence was commuted from life to 25 years. About a month later, in May 1953, she began to not feel very well and authorities described her as, quote, very pale and worn, end quote. On May twentieth, she was taken to a Saint Alphonsus and diagnosed with an appendectomy, and came back to the prison two days later after um, having surgery to repair that.
1: Fifty three, she was having uh, female trouble, and uh, she was out of here sometime. I can't remember. I think after I came in fifty three that she they took her downtown for a female operation, and she her whole attitude. And uh, her appearance actually changed for the better, you know.
0: And then on January 6, 1955, her sentence was commuted again to 23 years. And with this commutation, she would be eligible for parole in August 1955. While she was in prison, her great aunt Minnie Peterson in Howell, Wyoming took an interest in her. And this is from a letter from January 1954 to H.P. Fales, who was the secretary on the Board of Corrections. And uh, Minnie Peterson wrote, quote, I received a letter yesterday saying she was losing the sight in one eye. She's not mentioned it, but I would like to know all about it. Could a specialist help it? Perhaps her glasses do not fit correctly. I'm quite worried and wish she would let me know. Did Mr. Maxwell get her started with shorthand and typing? If he has not, will you let me Know what he needs to get her started. Would it do any good for her to go on the board soon? Please let me hear from you soon. Thanks again for all you have told me. And so then this is the reply from fails. He says, quote "I had a visit with Verna Sunday. She informed me that her eyes are not giving her any trouble and that she is feeling fine. We are sorry to report that due to our overcrowded condition in the women's ward, they are unable to do any studying along the line Verna has in mind. We are hoping to overcome the situation, however it may be some time yet before we are able to do so. As to your question of Verna coming before a Board of pardon soon, my personal opinion is that it would not be beneficial for her. I have discussed this matter with Verna, and she stated she did not desire to do so for some time. Of course, Verna would like to be released as soon as possible, but seems to be in very good spirits at this time. She seems willing to abide until her time of her parole." End quote. So, it was eventually decided that, given her good behavior and a permissible parole plan, she would be given indefinite parole on August 18, 1955. So according to her parole plan, she desired to go to the home of her great aunt, Minnie Peterson in Wyoming, who again, offered her help to Vernor several times during her incarceration. And she anticipated staying home and keeping house and taking care of her 11 year old cousin, who was apparently bedridden with rheumatic fever. And that was one of the things that Minnie Peterson wrote was that actually her husband was suffering from something as well. And so she essentially needed help to take care of these two very ill people. This was considered a good plan. And so she was released on parole on August 18th, 1955. She huh. served seven years, eight months on an original life sentence, after and which was then commuted to 23 years. This is the sixth longest sentence of any woman served in the women's ward.
2: And like during like the height mm-hmm. of population within that tiny little area. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah. There's only one woman who is kind of in for longer around the same time like the other ones are like Lida, Mary Crumroy, Josie so these are all much earlier than her so mm-hmm. um, interesting that she was kept uh, you know so much later uh, for so much longer because that's by then I feel like you would have known that like oh maybe women are capable of sort of these deeper darker crimes
2: yeah um, that like level of brutality uh-huh. is pretty intense right
0: yeah <laughs> About two weeks after leaving, Verna received a letter from Warden Clapp, and, Clap, and it, he says, quote, "It has been brought to our attention that Jean Weese has attempted to contact you through correspondence and other methods since your release. And Jean Weese, she was number eight nine five six. She was in for involuntary manslaughter." He says, "As you recall, you were warned before leaving that any contact with Jean would mean a violation of your parole. We are enclosing a copy of the letter which is being forwarded to Jean Weese. This is the last warning to her." End quote. Huh. So he's sending her a warning, like, if you keep doing this, this is a violation of your parole. So if I were you, I'd knock it off. Um, Jeez. I don't have any other material detailing the correspondence between Verna and Jean. You know, they probably were good friends. She was in there for quite a while. So in a letter from November 30th, 1955, from Clapp to a man named Bradford D. Jones from Flushing, New York. They don't have Jones's letter in her file. Clapp stated that since being released, Verna received permission from the parole board to get married. And so on October 18th, 1955, just two months after her release, Verna married Warren Hazen Peck in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, Peck, according to the newspaper articles I found, he had a bit of a criminal past himself, including burglary in 1946, destruction of property in 1948, and assault in 1949, though the charges were dropped. It is interesting that she would be allowed to marry him given the parole rules as to not to get involved with quote unquote evil associates, because, you know, you know she was writing she got in trouble for writing Jean. you know who was actually and they were just writing not actually getting married and like spending time together so Mm -hmm. um, kind of interesting that she was allowed to marry him of all people but they did get married peck seemed to suffer from problems with alcohol he was actually arrested in september 1956 for drunken driving and at some point the two of them divorced but i couldn't find when or if his arrest in 56 had any role to play in it, I'm just not totally sure. By the early 1960s, Verna moved back to California and married a man named Ruben Felix Arbio. Together, they had one daughter, Tamara, and they moved to Santa Marita, California, where they would live for the rest of their lives. And eventually, the couple had four grandsons. So she actually, she went on to live a, a pretty, you know, successful life normal life um, except for one exception this is from a, an article from the santa maria times from april 11th 1983 quote shoplifters were busy this weekend in santa maria according to police verna bel Arbio, 51 of santa maria was shopping at william brose market on sunday afternoon when store employees allegedly observed her placing a bottle of rum in her purse she did not pay for the rum at the checkout counter, said police. Arbeo was stopped outside of the store by the assistant manager, and the rum and a steak was found in her purse. She was cited and released, end quote. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know the circumstances behind that, but luckily that was the only thing I found about any sort of, you know, breaking of any laws and she lived a pretty quiet life um after this i didn't find any other news of her until her death on july 3rd 2002 in santa maria she was 71 years old and was cremated Now I think she and Ruben had a really good relationship because when he died in 2007, so five years after her death, his obituary worked as sort of a joint obituary for both him and Verna. And so this gives us a really lovely picture of her in her later years. And so I'll leave you with this quote from this obituary quote they both enjoyed life singing and helping their grandchildren they were wonderful loving dedicated and talented grandparents and great-grandparents they always enjoyed spending time with their grandkids they will both be missed very much by their grandchildren whom they loved and cherished end quote and so that is the story both gruesome and then i think we see a bit of a redemption arc there um, of number 7282 verna keller also called tarzan
2: i I know a little bit about verna i knew about her crime and stuff but man that really filled in the gaps and i'm glad it turned out more redemptive because i just that crime is just so haunting to me to be like kind of beaten and gagged to death is brutal that's really brutal really horrible yeah Wow. All right. Well, great work, Sky. Happy
0: Halloween, everyone.
2: Yeah. Happy Halloween. (laughs) Thank you all for listening today.
0: I hope everyone has a safe um, and happy Halloween. Enjoy fall if you aren't living in the South. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) you know, I guess we'll probably need to take another break just to sort of get over the... Uh, your, especially you with how busy Halloween is for you guys out there so uh, we might need to take a little bit of a break but we will be back to finish the season we've got some good stories coming down the pipe
2: yeah we'll see ya in November I've got a couple more stool pigeon Saturdays to fill the gap over the next couple of weeks but uh, yeah everybody enjoy your falls and enjoy Halloween be safe we will talk to you soon come to our events at the old pen if you have nothing planned over the next week and uh, do your own time. And
0: do your own number.
2: We'll talk to you later.
0: Happy Halloween. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind
1: Gray Walls Pod.